0: Welcome to a special WAMC conversation between Dr. Alan Shartok and Arlo Guthrie, recorded live at the Mahawi in Great Barrington, November 25th, 2015. Hello, folks.
1: (laughs) Thank you all for being here. Um, Arlo is um, a hero to so many of us. But you're going to see, you know, Alice's restaurant tonight. And um, on the way back from Albany today, I actually prepared... Arlo and listened to Arthur Penn uh, talking about how he came to make the movie. How do you remember that happening? I remember getting a phone
0: call from Arthur Penn pretty soon after the record came out in 1967. And he called me up. He said, Arlo, I just heard your record. I think most people think you're making this stuff up. (laughs) But... I live in Stockbridge. (laughs) I know these people. (laughs) And I've got to make a movie of this. And so the following year, in 1968, we started working on the film, and it came out uh, a year later. And
1: do you remember the moment that you decided to write the song, which is now, of course, as we all know, become the Thanksgiving, it's to Thanksgiving what white Christmas is to Christmas. So... (laughs) I know we play it at twelve o'clock every thanksgiving so so what what moment did you think it up?
0: We had just had this fabulous Thanksgiving dinner at the church, and we were sitting around maybe half a dozen of us. It was nowhere near like portrayed in the film with you know hippie hordes and thousands of people or something. There was about half a dozen of us, and we were sitting around after dinner, and I had a guitar, like it was, you know, I had always had a guitar glued to me, and we just started singing some songs. And we were laughing about the day's events, about having to go down to the jail and pick up the freaking garbage and all that kind of stuff that had happened that day. And that evening, sitting around in what is now the kitchen of, of, of the church. Uh, I put that little tune together which was essentially just a little ragtime uh, guitar piece which was my first love musically and we started making up stupid words <laughs> to the events that had happened. And Alice had at that point uh, was considering getting into the restaurant business. She hadn't done it yet, but she was thinking about it. And so, we thought about all the things you could get at Alice's restaurant, excepting. <laughs> and then we started adding other verses like, "You can hide from Obenheim at Alice's restaurant," you know. And that's that's actually how it began.
1: When did you know you had something? I heard you say once that it took more than a year to get it all together, to write the song. Well,
0: it took a year for those events to unfold. I had enrolled at a college in Montana, and I was going to study forestry, which was my first love. And uh, I, I never got the diploma, but I bought the forest eventually. And uh, worked out fine. Uh, so uh, But in those days uh, this was before the lottery and all of that kind of stuff uh, if you weren't in school and you were healthy, uh, you were going to Vietnam if you was a guy, or something close to it and uh, so there was a big incentive to stay in school. But even that was not enough. Because at that same time, stuff was happening. And I remember being in Billings, Montana, and on the radio, I heard Bob Dylan singing Positively Fourth Street. And I said, if they're playing this in freaking Billings, Montana, what are they playing in New York? And I thought, i got to go find out. And sure enough, uh, I left. I went back to New York where I grew up. And it was just at that pivotal moment uh, when the events were unfolding in Greenwich Village, the focal point of, of generations of folk singers had almost like a like a magnifying glass, had just focused in on this one little tiny area. And I realized I was in the epicenter of where I wanted to be. So I never went back to Montana. I went back years later. They gave me an honorary something or other, and that was nice, but.
1: So uh, you were Barmanford? Yeah. I just thought that was important to ask him. Don't. (laughs) you (laughs) think?
0: I remember it really well because I remember that the rabbi that was uh in those days came to the house and to not just prepare me but my brother and sister uh we were studying Hebrew we were doing all that kind of stuff and I'm sorry to be uh, you know in the position but I I uh he was a nice sweet guy yeah yeah his name was Mayor Kahana.
1: Oh no kidding. Meyer Kahana if you did if you missed it. Yeah.
0: And right after he started working with me, he started bombing things. <laughs> Neat. Uh, <laughs> I drove him freaking crazy is what happened, you know. <laughs>
1: That's great. So, this morning I was talking about, on the air, about interviewing you tonight here at the beautiful Maywee Theater, and two people called up and said, ask him why he's a Republican. Why are you a Republican?
0: Well, there's no good answer, but I can tell you this. (laughs) Ever since I became a Republican, the party has descended into chaos and insanity, (laughs) and... I can't take all the responsibility, but somebody had to do something, you
1: know. So, so, so we could say that you were working from within? Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: uh, still some work to do, in other words. Uh.
0: <laughs>
1: so, so one of the questions I anticipate the audience would love to know is how much in the film, in the song was not real. I mean, really, there was a blind, well, just, is, blind this, justice, right? Well, this
0: is the, the uh, crux of the matter with regard to making the film, uh, was that the song was only 20 minutes long. A film has to be an hour and a half. So they had to make up more, or what, whatever the difference is. I went to school in Brooklyn, so I can't do the math. But, you know, it's, it's like an hour and ten minutes of stuff or something like that that they had to make up. And so what they did was uh, they were trying to, in some way, uh, make a statement about the times, and the people, and individuals, and stuff like that. And unfortunately, because it's not actually, there's a difference between truth and fiction. And it's noticeable to most people. (laughs) Not the people in my party at the moment, but. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I think that's where the film, fell short for me is that they had to create movie themes that were acceptable at that time. Don't forget, this is a long time ago now. So there had to be love interests, there had to be uh, tragedies, there had to be some uh, action, there had to be all kinds of stuff that was not a part of the song, but in order to make a Hollywood movie, that's what you had to do. And so they Put all that together and created fiction. The problem with fiction is that when you use your real name, and you're actually the same you that I'm making up, <laughs> it becomes a problem. And I remember, you know, walking around with Arthur Penn, and he and he would, they, they had these lines in the script, and I would say, and I couldn't say them right because they weren't me, and I wasn't an actor. I was a kid, and so I said to Arthur Penn, I said, you know, I'm not comfortable saying this. He said, well, just pretend you're comfortable saying it.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, you know, you do that the best you can, of course. He told me he was a method director, meaning that you had to look for other things in your life to help you. He didn't to- tell me that.
0: <laughs> he just said, pretend to be the you we wrote. You know <laughs> yeah. And what happened is that there's a because I couldn't really remember lines, I had never studied that, anything like that, uh, there's a lot of the movie where I'm t- 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 talking like that, and because I'm trying to remember the lines. And I never thought anything of it. Uh, I just thought, okay, that's who that guy is until about 5 years ago my youngest daughter and I are having a conversation and she said well you got over stuttering when you were a kid I said I was I was not a stutterer that was not a problem for me she says dad it's right there in the movie you know and i had to explain to my own freaking kids that just because you see it uh, doesn't mean it's true. And so um, that, was, that was a problem for me, but not just me. Imagine being Alice Brock, who now is sleeping with this guy and making it, you know, and flirting her eyes at that guy, and none of which is true, but she had to live with somebody playing her, doing all of these things that she never did, or, or Ray Brock, uh, who was portrayed as some wild, drunk, crazy guy. Now, he was wild, and, and <laughs> but he wasn't crazy. Uh, and there were a whole lot of people whose names and faces uh, were used in one way or another to tell a story that wasn't really them. And so it became a problem. Most of those people did not like the movie. Uh. And... They have learned to live with it at this point, because... Or, or they've died.
1: <laughs> we, we, all have, um, we all have, Arlo, uh, th- those great moments in that film, and I think you'll all be watching out for it. I mean, for example, the, the late Lee Hayes is in the film, singing right. Amazing Grace, yeah. one of the three weavers. Or three, right? One... Two, three, four. One of four. Yeah. And Pete is also in there, obviously. Yeah. And Pete comes into the hospital room. You'll you'll see right. him you'll see him do that. Um, but my favorite, and I think almost everybody else's, is, is when the young woman decides she wants to sleep with you. And you ask her why, and she says, because I think you're gonna be an album. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would did that happen. Well <laughs>
0: Let me put it this way. No young guy learns to play guitar not to meet women.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I, you know, I, I understand that. Does that the make any sense? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Certainly makes sense to me. Um, well, in my family, you
0: were either uh, uh, going to play music right. or you were going to dance to it. Your mom was a dancer. My mom was a gram dancer and uh, one of my teachers at the schools that we were going to was a gal named Margot Mayo, who was very, very instrumental in preserving uh, folk dance. And internationally speaking, she's a very wise woman. And I remember, you know, the choice. You were either going to be out there dancing around and, or playing the music for the dancers. And the choice was clear to me. Uh, I, I laughed with, with my sister because my sister, my younger sister, became a dancer. And, and to this day, I, I laugh. I said, you know, you became the dancer, but I got the legs, <laughs> and she's still mad at me for that. You know. So and I remember my mom telling me, Arlo, you know, there are men dancers. And I'd say, Mom, I'm a guitar player. That's what I'm doing. And she enrolled me in a guitar playing class with a guy named Earl Robinson. And he came to my mother. My mother had a studio in New York. And uh, I remember going to the class and thinking, oh, my god. I mean, I was a kid. I was 13. I already knew how to play, but my mom would not let me sort of escape the teaching that she thought was required to be a real uh, musician. Was she right? No.
1: Because <laughs> you are an amazing musician and people don't fully, I mean, because you're, you're so you know, charismatic and you, you talk so well. But, but what's extraordinary is that you're a great guitar player. Uh, thank you.
0: Uh, you know, I just love playing, that's all. And if you do anything long enough that you love, you
1: cannot get worse at it. I don't know. I've been, <laughs> I don't know. I've been playing for 40 years. It <laughs> doesn't get any better. But it's not getting any worse. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's an exception to every rule. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the day... It, uh, I first played Carnegie Hall. It was in 1967. I was a kid. And I remember looking out in the audience, and there was my piano teacher. And I remember the expression on her face for two hours was, how is this happening? <laughs> Why is he here? It didn't make any sense.
1: I have appreciated absurdity ever since, you know. <laughs> you know, Arlo, for those of us of a certain age, the fact that you're going to be at Carnegie Hall now and every year started with the Weavers, didn't it? Yeah, it
0: started in the, uh, in the 50s. During the Blacklist period, uh, the Weavers had gone from being number one best-selling artists in the U.S. to nothing. Santa and Goodnight, Irene and so long it's been good to know you. And they couldn't get work anywhere because the FBI and the government uh, and their cronies and partners uh, were just too um, afraid, really, uh, to allow people to have that kind of experience. They were really worried about it. And so they went to nothing. I mean, imagine uh, what some top-performing artists these days would, you know, find themselves in that kind of position. And Harold Leventhal was uh, their manager at
1: the time. Wonderful man. For all of you who have not met him, he looked like Yoda. Go ahead. He decided that he was going to book
0: them at Carnegie Hall anyway, in spite of the blacklist because he had nothing to lose.
1: I, I heard from him that he, I think he started trying a lesser place like Town Hall, and they, of course, were adhering to the blacklist. Right, and but Carnegie is crying. unique. Yeah.
0: Carnegie is not afraid of anybody. Every one of their stagehands has pictures of their yachts backstage. <laughs> I mean, try to get in that union. Uh, but Carnegie was not intimidated by anything but money you got the money you can play Carnegie hall or at least you can book it and harold booked it and sold it out so fast that it put an end to the blacklist as far as the weavers were concerned and that was it the people spoke they came they had to they recorded it and people refused to be intimidated anymore. And it was as simple as one man standing up and just taking care of business. How many people does Carnegie
1: hold? do you know? Carnegie Hall holds 2,800 people. 2,800 people, and yet I've met 300,000 who swear they were there that night. It's worse than Woodstock. <laughs> 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 right, right. So the genesis of the Weavers to Pete well, Pete and the, it was one of the
0: weavers, and they played there for uh, this time, uh, probably 54, 55, 56. I don't remember the actual dates. I remember, you know, being there. I was a kid. Uh, and it was the, the feeling in the halls that night. It was more than just a concert. It was a repudiation of a world that had gone uh, that was living in fear. And they said, no more. We'll, we'll have another experience like that because the world is feeling similar in some ways these days. But uh, soon after, Pete left the Weavers uh, and continued to play at Carnegie Hall, what was called an, uh, a holiday concert. So it was after Thanksgiving, but before Christmas. And he did that for, for years. And then in, at some point in 1968 or 9, whatever it was, he invited me to play
1: with him. And. Why? No, I didn't mean to be disrespectful. I just, I mean, Pete had a real feeling for the Guthrie children. He did. And I, I know that because I've talked about it with him a number of times, but, but he was a real professional musician. He wasn't going to just bring anybody up there with him. Well, Pete had.
0: Uh, Pete was not just a musician. He was a scholar, uh, as far as music goes, uh, and he was a. He was a true believer. He really embodied the spirit of, and he was a patriot. Uh, he really felt like a kind of Johnny Appleseed character who would go around spreading the seeds of justice and, uh, you know, and those kinds, whatever the issues were at the different times throughout his career, the issues changed, but he didn't change. Uh, They were calling him all kinds of names, like, you know, they do, and it just went by him. It didn't, he learned, he had a thick skin. And I think that is uh, something he developed. I don't think it was there all the time. But he learned to let it go by and just do what he did. And when he couldn't sing at the big halls anymore, he went to summer camps and he went to schools and he went to churches and synagogues and wherever people would hear him sing, he, he went. And he learned something interesting. And that is that the power of people singing together is transformative. It changes you. It's it's like learning to ride a bike. You can't unlearn it. You can't undo it. Once you're in a crowd of people participating in even just one song, it it awakens a part of uh, your humanity that generally stays asleep. And he discovered that or rediscovered it. And he never forgot it. And so the rest of his life, he spent uh, empowering people, I hate to use that word because it's so overused today, but that's exactly what he did. He didn't, at 94, just months before he passed away, uh, he he was, we did another concert together at Carnegie. I remember one time, I should say, that a decade earlier, when he was 85, He calls me up, and he says, Harlow, I can't do those Carnegie Hall shows with you anymore. I can't sing like I used to sing. I can't play like I used to play. And I said, Pete, look at our audience. (laughs) I said, said, they can't hear like they used to hear. (laughs) He he said, well, maybe you're right. And we continued on uh, until finally, you know, he got so frail, it was difficult, and I inherited that time slot at Carnegie Hall from him, and uh, I called him up, you know, one year, I forgot what it was, and I said, Pete, you want to join us, you know, on stage? No, no, it's all right, and a couple of years go by, maybe three or four, and I found out from his grandson, Tao, that just before the Carnegie show we were doing that year, Pete was at home with his banjo by the door. He wouldn't call and say he wanted to do it. He was just waiting for us to call. And so I called. Well, okay, you know. (laughs) And sure enough, he, he, he came. And when he returned to that stage, Uh, it was a moment I won't forget. We walked out uh, on this, it takes a while to get from the back to the center of the stage, and the audience just stood up and would not sit down. And they just clapped, and they were whistling, and they were cheering and stuff like that, and we were trying to get to the first song. But it went on and on, and when you're on stage, I mean, every second is like minutes, and this was physically like 10 minutes. And so it was embarrassing at some point, and eventually he quieted them down. But then...
1: Um, I was sitting there, and I wouldn't sit down either. I was standing up too, and I, boy, it was a moment. You talk about transformative moments. It was a moment we all wanted to, to say thank you to Pete. Yeah,
0: well, I can tell you that the last show we did together, I called him up and I said, Pete, will you do Carnegie with us this year? And he said, well, Harlow, I can only remember three songs. Uh, I said, that's fine. Just come out and sing those three songs. Okay. So he comes out. Now, prior to that show, I started thinking, it's not that he only remembers three songs. He only remembers that he remembers three songs. (laughs) The difference is subtle, but it's real. (laughs) So what I did was we started at the church, with my entire family, and even right here on this stage. And we rehearsed a whole bunch of Pete Seeger songs. Because I had the feeling that if he heard the song, he would know it. And we got out on the stage that night, him with his three songs, and we started singing Pete Seeger songs. Where have all the flowers gone? You know, all that that kind of stuff. And he's sitting there. Oh yeah, I know that one. (laughs) You know, (laughs) he'd start plunking along as best he could, and we got through the night. And it was just—it was we didn't. If we had called it a Pete Seeger tribute concert, he would not have showed up. He was a very humble guy, so we didn't call it that. But that's exactly what it was. It was a way of thanking him for the decades he had spent being him and uh, keeping that spirit going. So we did that, and for that reason, I never felt obligated to go and do the actual tributes that happened after that. I thought, we did the one that counted. And I was so thankful to be able to do that.
1: You once said that uh, there were two ways to sing a song. The way that everybody else does it, and the Pete way. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, I have no idea. Well, I think I know what you mean. <laughs> I think you meant Pete could sing it with you, in front of you, and behind you, all at the same time. I think what Pete did was he made, he, he had a presence
0: about him or a spirit about him that allowed him to be, to take control of a crowd. There was nobody else that I've ever worked with, and I've worked with a lot of people over the years and decades, a lot of really great artists and all kinds of wonderful uh, entertainers. Nobody could ever go like this and have a crowd instantly sing in harmony. (laughs) And nobody has done it ever since, and I don't know if anyone will ever do it again, but it was... um, it was mystical. I mean, it really was that. And he generated, he believed in it so much that it just came out of him and, it, and gave everybody the feeling of that. Uh, it was a pleasure. And to have him in the movie uh, was just an added uh, attraction uh, that we look back on. I mean, those are the parts of the movie that I actually like was seeing Lee Hayes, seeing Pete be themselves because they're not actors either and you know, some of the other stuff is kind of silly but uh, just seeing those guys actually there
1: at a a moment in time, it's always a pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about Woody. You know, I mean if Pete was a great influence on your life of course, your relationship with your father, the stories you tell about the guitar that he taught you how to play your first song on and the rest of it, but here is this icon of American, uh, American music. I mean, he's, he's central to all of folk music the beginning. I don't know how to ask this, but his, his um, importance to you as a performer, when you perform, how much is Woody? That's actually an
0: interesting question because uh, uh, there's no way to know. Uh, but I had never seen my father actually perform. He got, he he was ill and hospitalized uh, when I was maybe six. And so my growing up consciousness of him was not as a performer. Uh, It was him as, as a person. And every performer is at least two people. Uh, There's a stage person who comes out like what I'm doing now and there's a normal person. Uh, In any other line of work this would be a disorder. Uh, (laughs) But in theater, in entertainment, it's a necessity. I remember when I did the shows with my grandkids, They'd be fighting backstage, you know, and hitting each other or stealing pencils or throwing pizza or whatever. And I had to tell them, you can do this here, but when you got out on stage, that stops. I don't care how you feel. I don't care if you're happy or you're sad or you're this or that. When you're on stage, you're a performer. And a performer acts like this. And you smile when you're singing and you actually pay attention to when somebody else is doing something you have to look at them and you can't just be drifting you know uh, fixing your hair or whatever and at, that's when i realized this disorder that uh most most people would go get help for is very helpful it's it's not helpful it's ne- it's a necessity you cannot be the same person now so when you get home that performer goes away and then you, you have to deal with people like as a normal person I never knew my father as that performer I had never seen him I had never heard it the only person I knew was the person who was pretending to be normal at home and that was true until just about two years ago when suddenly Somebody showed up at my sister's office uh, with a wire recording, a live performance of my father. We had no live recordings. I had never heard any. All the recordings were done in the studios, essentially for the purposes of publishing. Uh, They weren't even recording for making good records. They were just documenting, okay, the words in the tune goes like this, And so somebody would transcribe them, and they would put out books and, you know, uh, stuff like that. But here was a live recording. Not only that, my mother is also on stage with him, and she is introducing him to this East Coast crowd. And she's saying stuff like, and now the balladier from Oklahoma... Woody Guthrie will sing a song about growing up in Oklahoma. And she'd say, Woody, would you sing that song, you know? And he'd say, well, yeah. I remember when I was a kid there and i out in Oklahoma and, uh, you know, the wind would be blowing and the oil would be uh, flowing and the uh, farmer would be owing and, uh, and he'd go off on these freaking crazy stories that seemingly had nothing to do with the song, except it would come back to it and fit. And my mother, you could hear her on the tape, getting increasingly nervous (laughs) and upset because she had written all the words to all of his songs so that he could actually get through them and the order in which they were to be sung. And he was going all over the place and he had the audience in the palm of his hand. And she couldn't figure that out because it wasn't something she had planned. It didn't make any sense. She was a trained grand dancer, which meant that every discipline that was available to a human being would be hers at her, you know, at her beck and call. Uh, and this tug of war, goes on through the entire concert until finally toward the end you hear her saying and now Woody Guthrie from Oklahoma will briefly, very (laughs) briefly, in just a few words (laughs) so we're listening to this for the first time, my sister and I and she starts and my sister starts crying and just tears in her eyes and I said, you know, what's wrong? She said, I thought you invented this stuff. (laughs) I looked at her. I said, I thought I invented this stuff. (laughs) Suddenly, I realized that it was not all of the disciplines and all of the hours I had spent perfecting my stuff. It was there all the time. I don't know whether to be disappointed at that or not, but uh, that's, you know, that was the, the funny thing. I, was just, I just spent today with my sister and my brother, uh, and we were all very different people, and we all had taken little pieces of both of our parents, like everybody does. And so I ended up being the one that got the story gene. The, the crazy tail gene. And my siblings got other stuff, you know.
1: You know, when somebody becomes legendary as you are, people talk about you and they say things that they might not say to your face. So I'm a jerk and I'll say it to your face. You know one of the things that is always talked about is the fact that your dad passed from Huntington's chorea, and that your chance of getting that disease is 50 percent, and that you had chosen in your life not to be tested for it, which is possible. Can you talk about that for a minute? Well, I remember uh,
0: being the one uh, that essentially uh, I was the oldest kid in our family, and uh, You know, my dad was uh, finding it difficult to just get around. Difficult to walk at some points, and he'd get fits of anger and crazy stuff, none of which was him. It was all a part of this sort of degenerative disease, which uh, correctly these days is called Huntington's disease. They've left the Korea part now. Uh, And so I would be holding him up, and he was just a little guy. He's only like five foot four. And, you know, so even for uh, uh, a kid like me, I could bear his weight and just get him to places, you know, and walk around. But it was very, very difficult because uh, in, the, in the hospitals he was in at that time, they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to deal with people who, uh, not just him, But other people that had other disorders that were uh, uh, sort of showing up the same way, they had no idea what to do. They put him through all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, electric shock therapies and wild stuff. Uh, And my mother, Wanting to make sure that we understood as much as we were capable uh, from a young age, you know, introduced us to that disease and to what his problems were in the same way that you would introduce sex to your kids. I mean, you can't tell them everything, but little by little, you know, you sort of lead them along. And uh, so at some point, uh, when I was old enough, I got it. I understood what the what the chances of getting it were. I understood what the um, uh, you know the problems were it was very difficult and I have a tremendous amount of sympathy and empathy and compassion for all the people who have to deal with that these days because the disease is changing also now it's striking younger and younger people and uh, there's still n- not much anybody can do about it. and But at some point, I realized that uh, decades later, now I'm married, I've got kids and all of that kind of stuff, and the test becomes available. The test doesn't tell you whether you're going to get the disease or not. It tells you whether you have the gene that could give you the disease or not. And so they, all the scientists and doctors and stuff like that, you know, showed up and said, well, are you going to take the test? I said, no. They said, well, why not? You can find out. I said, well, what if they came out with a test for bricks falling on your head? (laughs) Or what if they came out for elephant trampling test? Or a wild dog attack test? I mean, when do you stop testing and just go on with your life? And if you're not going to, I mean, don't get me wrong. For some people, it may be important. If you're, uh, if you don't have any kids, might be a reason to consider taking some kind of test. But if that's already done, uh, there's no, the point to finding out only would be a sort of mental exercise. There's nothing you could do about it. And then I thought to myself, well, what if my grandmother had taken that test and there wouldn't be a Woody Guthrie? Is it worth it? Hell yeah. So whether you got diseases or not, or whether you are uh, threatened by stuff like that, I don't think it's uh, a good idea to judge yourself so harshly or your kids or your family or anybody else to make those kind of judgments. I think it's interesting to know stuff, but people generally will use that information in fear and not remember uh, that with great struggle comes real greatness sometimes. And you got to remember that, that it's worth being here.
1: You lost your wonderful wife who we all love so much, uh, Jackie and there are lessons as, as always to be learned from, from this. Tell us about grief and how you handled it. I
0: have no idea. Uh, you know my wife was uh, someone who uh, was the better half of me and I don't mean that in the sort of the way we use the term generally. Uh, She was the one who would always go and meet people, talk to people, invite them in, uh, and make them part of our sort of larger family. She was the one that uh, enjoyed uh, relating to individual people. It wasn't me, that was her and i always liked to just be by myself uh and so when she passed away suddenly i had to be i had to become that somebody that i wasn't used to which had which was as a unit we incorporated things uh i mean she was the one that made sure everybody got presents at the uh, during holidays. So she had the lists and stuff. I didn't do that stuff. She did that stuff. Now I I got I'm trying to remember who who's in the family. You know. <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, so it was it was a it was a disaster for her to have left. It wasn't in the plan that we had uh, and I mean, I was still dealing with it. So it's not a matter of dealing with, uh, it's not even grief. Uh, I haven't even got that far. I'm still dealing with the remnants of life. And I mean, I can tell you honestly, it's 30 or 40 times a day that I remember something that has to do with her. I hear her voice, something happens. And I said, geez, where are you? You know, and it's, it's over three years now, so it's not, I'm expecting at this point that it's not going to get any better. I don't, that's not really grief to me. It's, it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, there, there is grief in this world. I mean, you can see it in, in the people fleeing the hor- horrors of war and devastation and stuff like that. That's real grief. When a loved one passes, that's, it doesn't compare. You know, it's a different kind of personal grief. But my, my thinking is, look, if this kind of internal suffering is a natural part of life, if, because every one of us is going to be dealing with this kind of loss, uh, there's enough suffering in the world without adding to it on purpose. And when people get up there, and advocate for more disaster, or more whatever, or re- any of the things that, you know, whether it's revenge or whatever, uh, it, I just, I feel sorry for, for them in a way that tells me that they are using th- that because they're afraid to deal with the loss of love in their own hearts. they got closed hearts. They're not angry. There's nobody angry at uh, us as a nation. I don't believe that. They're afraid. There are people in this country who are afraid. it, It comes out as anger, but it's fear. And I am not afraid of that loss. Because that's a part of being a human being. So you deal with it. It's a pain in the butt. And but you go through it. I remember when my mother passed away, and you now I felt like, I expect, we talked every day on the phone. All of a sudden I couldn't do that anymore. Every place I went, and I, I spent nine, 10 months a year traveling around the, the world for the last 50 freaking years. There's not a city I ever went to that I didn't talk to my wife. Can't do that anymore. So things change. And when you compound that with idiocy and uh, feelings of, uh, you know, fear or whatever, uh, it just makes matters worse. So one of the reasons we do what we do at the church, you know, and all the other stuff we do is to just try to help people who are dealing with those kinds of fears. People who are afraid and you can't blame them. Uh, it's a natural part of things. It's a survival sort of instinct. But you either feed the fear or you feed the love. And that's, it's one or the other. Uh, um, and if you feed the fear, you, the result is anger and frustration and revenge. And ah, well, let's get those guys, you know. Okay. Uh, the world will grow out of it at some point. That's my belief. Uh, it may take a while. None of us is gonna be here 100 years from now anyhow. So I'm not worried about preserving my own life that much. Uh, But I would like the legacy that we leave as individuals and as the uh, foundations that we started and do that to just be another place in the world where feelings are uh, used to our best advantage.
1: Well, just taking it from there, um, that that loss was pretty extraordinary, but I looked at your kids last night when we were at the Guthrie Church, and Sarah Lee came out and opened for you. Just a beautiful voice and a beautiful young woman and a wonderful husband and Johnny and and then Abe standing next to you. I don't think there's anybody in the Berkshires who doesn't love Abe Guthrie, <laughs> uh, and, and that's that's you. I mean, you've given them all and and they handle your business and they handle your... That's got to be of some real solace to you that these are such wonderful, wonderful kids. I mean, it's true on the one hand.
0: And then I say, you know, honey, if you could only see this. And so there's, you know, there's always one side or the other. Uh, and And you hope that that's all possible beyond your ability. You know I I discovered something really interesting Uh, when when Jackie passed away it wasn't just a few days after I suddenly realized that there was a sort of essence or presence or something like that that comes with the memories and comes with the stuff and I thought oh I know who that is I can feel it You walk in the house, the phone rings, something happens. Uh, You can feel it. It's not something I'm making up. It happens to everybody. I thought, well, that was there all the time. That was there when she was walking around. And what was I paying attention to? What's for dinner? You know, where are we going? What are you doing that for? Uh, And I thought to myself, What an idiot I am, you know. That was who I should have paid attention to because that was, if if I had learned to do that while she was still here, I wouldn't miss her at all because that's who's here now. And I thought, well, if that's true, then there's a part of me that was always here, always will be here. And if I don't pay attention to that, I'll miss out on that too. So, and that's true for everybody. There's a part of everybody Who I think, at least the way I think of things, was always here. Never goes anywhere. I mean, no life and death, all that stuff. It's always there. And to get in touch with that part of your own self takes away a lot of problems.
1: Although I, I promised upon fear of my death, I promised George, who runs the wonderful church that you have given us all. Uh, you planning I, on going somewhere soon there? Uh, or what? Yeah, that, that, that I would ask you, um, uh, I promised them that I would ask you, because that church needs a new roof, and that church needs all kinds of, um, you know, I mean, for a while, George would kid around at the beginning of a performance, and he would say, and he would say, uh, let's turn down the air conditioning, of course, there was no air conditioning, right. it was hotter yeah. than hell in there, um, so, you're about to embark on something, and, and they're giving me the signal back there to shut up. You're about to embark on a way to save this precious part of the Berkshires. Could you tell us a little about it? Uh,
0: really quickly, uh, back in the day, over 100 years ago, there was a bunch of Dutch that lived where the church is, surrounding area. It's in the hamlet of Van Dusenville not a typical English name and which is in the village of Housatonic, which is in the town of Great Barrington and which is in the state of disarray. Uh, (laughs) However, back in those days it was against the law not to go to church. Everybody had to go to church. Well, the Dutch didn't have their own church. They had to go to the English church. They didn't speak English, but they went anyway because that's what was required. Until one day they got out of church, and somebody who could speak English and Dutch told them what the preacher was saying, which was, don't be like those stupid, dumb Dutch. (laughs) They found out about it. They refused to go the next week. The constables came, built some stocks, put the two ringleaders in the stocks. Well, instead of that being... uh, a sorry state of affairs, the Dutch figured out how to pour beer down the throats of the guys in the stocks. (laughs) And so it became a party. And to celebrate, they decided they were going to build their own church. And so they built a little chapel. It burnt down some few years later, and they took the timbers and built what is now the old Trinity Church or Guthrie Center and I thought with a beginning like that we are the perfect occupants (laughs) and but we are only a temporary occupant it was here long before me it hopefully will be here long before I'm gone long after I'm gone and so we are the temporary custodians I just don't want the place to fall down on my watch Somebody else would be using it for something else. I hope that the spirit of what we put in there will contribute to it, just like the spirit of everybody who had been in there for the last 150 years is, is palpable when you walk in. It's there. It's not something we invented. And so I think what we do in there goes along with the original intent, kind of humorous but serious at the same time, uh, take care of people do the right stuff, and drink beer. And we try to do all of those things with some degree of sensibility, but it's not always easy. And I hope that you know within the coming few years, we can do much more than just the roof. But if we fix the roof and we get the new heater and we get the kitchen set up, we'll be able to run all year round. Now, most of the time, for the last 20 years that I've owned it or the foundations have owned it, uh, we operate in the summer uh, because there's no heat. We just got heat in there, but it's supplementary heat. It's not real heat. And so we can operate a few weeks later in the summer and a few weeks earlier in the spring to uh, continue the programs that we do. And we do some great local community stuff and we do uh, some Music and, uh, you know, all this. You can find out what we do if you're interested. But uh, what interests me is just keeping the place going while we're here so that on our watch it stays because it is a piece of history now. It has a little bit to do with me, but it's not because of me. I'm just a part of it. I'm part of a bigger history than just Alice's Restaurant or the church or something like that. And the church is going to be here, I think, uh, as an icon for the spirit of people who are interested in what Pete Seeger used to say. He said to me once, he said, Arlo, you know, any large government or any multinational corporation or any big group can stop any big effort that doesn't go along with their best interests. They'll find a way. They'll infiltrate, they'll, you know, they'll make you suspicious and distrustful and stuff like that. They can thwart any attempt by a big organization. But no government and no multinational corporation, no big operation has the resources or the wherewithal to stop the millions of little people who do stuff in their own hometown. And so our idea was, let's just do that. Let's just do something in our own hometown and just keep it going. And if the very least that we do is just keep the building going, I will be happy. If we can do other stuff, awesome. And we have. I I don't want to get into it, because it feels like bragging, but we do some really cool stuff. They're turning the lights on.
1: (laughs) They are. That's that's telling me something. That's hard on me, Arlo. We love Arlo Guthrie, don't we? You've been listening to a special WAMC conversation between Dr. Alan Shartok and Arlo Guthrie, recorded live at the Mahawi in Great Barrington, November 25th, 2015.